Hey, what's up, everyone? This is a special episode of the Mission Daily. And it's also the Mission Book Club all at the same time. How are we doing it? I don't know, but we make it happen. Multitaskers. And today's book club is about Walt Disney, probably the best known Disney biography. It's called Walt Disney Triumph of the American Imagination. And this book is written by Neil Gabler. And it's probably the last time we'll do a 900-page book for... You got a little bit of heat for picking a 900-page book. Um, I was just curious. I hadn't read it before, and I wanted to read it. So, Well, you certainly did. Did so you read the I, condensed version, first of all, or the long one? No, I li- actually listened to the long version. I started to read it on Kindle. I quickly realized that that wasn't going to happen. I switched over to Audible, and uh, 61 chapters later at uh, 2.5x speed, finished. I was glad I did because it's a really powerful biography and I think it's a great way to pick up a lot of insights from history and things that were going on during that time. So in this book club, we want to open it up to questions, comments, any big ideas that you have in the book that you wrote down that you're thinking about. We'd love to cover and kind of like expand on those and hear what you thought about it. Yep. But we And have, how many people got through it? If anyone got through it, that's amazing. The next book, just FYI, is called The Courage to be Disliked, and it's much shorter, and it's just written in a dialogue format, actually, between a philosopher and a young student. So it's much, much simpler. So if you're looking for a way to recover after the Disney biography, this is a great place to do it. So before we jump into it, big shout out to Twilio Signal Conference that's coming up October 17th and the 18th here in not sunny San Francisco because it's usually cloudy. But that's okay. It's going to be an amazing time. And San Francisco, if you have not been the conference center where they're going to have the conference at, Twilio Signal, is incredible. It's a lot of fun, great space. And we're looking forward to seeing everybody there. So the format for this breakdown is basically we're breaking Walt Disney's life into five epochs. And I just wanted to share some of the things that stood out to me that I still can't get out of my head during each epoch. So we're going to go over his childhood and family, kind of his background and his family history, his younger years, kind of like his formative formative years, getting started, founding Disney, what that was like, and then trying to grow it and keep the business alive during World War II. I think that there are some very important lessons for everyone who's idealistic out there. We can all fall into the trap of being too idealistic and not taking advantage of the opportunities at hand. And I think Disney's story was amazing because he didn't turn his nose up like, quite frankly, many artists do at money to keep their business going during World War II. Then finally, the fourth part, later years when Disney was breaking away from Disney to start his other company that started Disneyland and then Disney World in Florida, how they went about getting that property and how Walt conceived of Epcot and some of those things. But it's generally a really illustrative book on how to translate imagination into reality. But sadly, when we bring to the fifth part, I'm going to share my thoughts on the the book as a whole, which might be a bit counterintuitive and I don't want to upset. Uh-oh. I don't want to upset anyone, but I don't think anybody's going to anticipate my uh, overall sentiments about the book. Okay. Well, and also side note, drop in any of your thoughts, comments into the comments. I am the official moderator. So I will be reading all the comments, pulling out the best questions or anything you thought about it. So feel free. I'm ready. And feel free to interject too and just ask questions about these specific things because yeah, I had a lot of thoughts and 
the biggest, the most interesting thing for me is the foundations of everything. So I'm not talking about the foundations of Disney. I'm talking about the foundations of Walt's family, because like it or not, we are the byproduct of our grandparents, our great grandparents' decisions, our parents' decisions. Those influence us in major, major ways. And I think that talk about serious, serious hardships in a completely different life. It was basically a situation where his grandparents, they had 16 children and his grandfather spent something like two years looking for oil. So as a wildcatter, basically, he went out, bet everything he had looking for oil. Then that didn't work. So he came home and then he struck out west for gold and just taking his sons with him at at a moment's notice saying, we're moving across the country to join the gold rush. And that type of mentality just doesn't exist anymore. And where families not only take bets on each other, but join in and team up and make stuff happen. They actually didn't make it all the way out West. They stopped along the way and I forget what they did, but they basically set up shop and set up another business. And one of the things that I still can't get out of my head was Disney's grandfather and his best friend at the time. They basically made a pact with each other. They were such good friends and life was so uncertain and so terrifyingly short sometimes that they made a pact that if their wives were pregnant and they said, okay, if we have sons, we're going to name them after each other. That's how that's cute. It's cute, but it's also a, a startling statement about how short and fleeting life really was and how rare is it to have that type of friendship with someone that doesn't exist today. It, it rarely, rarely exists. And if you are lucky to have that type of camaraderie with someone, yeah, better hold them close and uh, you're extremely lucky. If anybody does have that type of relationship, you got to like let us know if you've uh, done something like that. It kind of reminds me of our friend Reva. Did she tell you the story how she named her cat after her Lyft driver because they had such a good bond, <laughs> her new kitten? She named Kyle. it after... Yeah, Kyle. She named it after her, or no, her Lyft driver's cat or something they formed a connection where she was like i will name my new kitten kyle and oh, i was like cool. oh that's cute so okay yeah very I, I digress but i think all of her cats have either names like that or uh greek greek names inspired from uh, yeah greek tragedies and things like that all tragedies right. that's, a, that's tragedies. a hint at what is coming oh so D- disney didn't start school till seven years old he left high school i think after his first year i don't think that's any accident and it's no accident that he went on to achieve what he did because he didn't spend too much time in the public school system. And I think that in his early years, the biggest takeaway that people can apply is just the work ethic was in some cases sickening. And like, we're not advocating that, but some type of early work ethic and entrepreneurial spirit has to be cultivated by someone. And in this case, Disney's dad was kind of a horrible, pretty rough guy, superstitious, annoying. But at the same time, he forced Walt to get going with his paper route. And this isn't like a paper route where it's like, oh, I'll just deliver some papers around the neighborhood. It's like, you're going to do this paper route and you're going to give me all the money and you're going to, it's a huge route. It's really long. There were a couple of points where he would have to like hide out from snowstorms or bad weather and sleep, Mm. sleep through basically to avoid freezing to death and then go back and rejoin the route type thing. Yeah. So I think that that's really telling. And then just to again, stress on how much those formative years matter. When he was young too, his aunt was 
really, really encouraging him and selling him on his artistic abilities. Not just like, oh, those are nice drawings, but these are amazing. You're amazing again and again. And that commonality is always there. If it's not there, you better believe that somebody that achieves something greater later on has found that type of mentorship and relationship because even if it's just one person, it doesn't have to be the whole family. It doesn't have to be the whole world. One person who believes in you. It doesn't have to be in your family too. That's another like huge misconception. You can find that level of support and faith elsewhere. But if you don't have that at some point in your life, don't stop looking. Keep looking until you find that because that is so vital. And it has to be somebody too that you look up to. So it's not like Walt always looked up to his aunt, but you have to have somebody that, you know, as a child, you look up to that person. And then I think if you can do that later on, that's just vital. How would you find those people though? If you know that you need that one cheerleader, someone to really back you up, how do you go about even finding them? Because I feel like he was pretty lucky having that one person in his life. I, so yeah, not many of us are you know fortunate enough to have that, but I think conversations and dialogue and like we've talked about in so many episodes before, courage. So having the courage to put yourself out there and have the courage to draw on and then show those drawings to people. Because so often when we tell people what our preferences are in art or share our creations with them, most people don't react favorably to that. That's generally like they're going to poke fun at it. They're going to feel awkward. They're going to feel awkward because you've shared some of your emotions or you've been vulnerable. It's going to make them feel uncomfortable because in their head, they're playing out a scenario where if they did the same thing, they've been hurt in the past, blah, 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 just stupid things like that. One more thing that I have to share too. Yeah. So Disney's grandfather was super wise and he wouldn't fertilize his fields because he thought it was like giving whiskey to a man. He feels good for a short period of time and then worse for a longer period of time. And it's really interesting how folk wisdom borders on superstitious, but sometimes like in cases like this, it borders on being correct. And in the modern days, times where we have so many fields basically being depleted of natural minerals and fertilizers causing who knows what type of problems and horrible side effects. That's, I think, pretty, pretty interesting that that was basically just his gut sentiment. He saw what was happening. He saw what other people were doing and just related to the two concepts. And yeah. Yeah, that's the ability to be patient too, to know that like you could put something on your crops and maybe get an instant you know, production of crops or whatever you would call it. I don't know. I'm not a crop expert. <laughs> whatever the terminology is, let me know people if I'm completely botching it. We're not into agritech or there you whatever. Go. I'm not into Valley any of that is. apparently. <laughs> but if you, you know, can hold out kind of and be patient and know that I might not do this right now, but come back in a couple of weeks and I'm going to have something better than what all of my co-crop farmer friends have. That's a really good treat to have. Oh, I like, I think it's side. I hope I'm saying the name right. She says several teachers were her cheerleaders. That's great. Very cool. That's really good, especially early on. Yeah, and I would love to hear who was the cheerleader, who was the biggest cheerleader, how many of them, how did you first get that support? Were you showing them a project you did? Were you just doing your thing in school? So I'm always really curious to see how that type of support emerged. Did you initiate it, side, or did the teacher, or how that It could be Sid. Sorry if I'm botching your name. Yeah, sorry, we might we might have botched that there. But let us know. We want to hear about it. And so another fun uh, side note. So guess how hard Disney's paper route was? How hard? It was so bad and so difficult that he would wake up. 
he, he had PTSD, basically. He would wake up with nightmares. <laughs> he would have dreams that he was like late on his route or he hadn't collected payment or things like that. This reminds me of my restaurant life. Remember, I would have those dreams waking <laughs> up and be like, this person wants a shot. This person wants an orange cross. Oh, I can't get the drinks to everyone. And I would really have nightmares about it. So I must, me and Walt, we obviously very connected with that. <laughs> yeah, I think all of us have had that experience of like, working so hard and then being waking up in a, in a panic mode. But it's kind of fun too, because you have something that you take that seriously and you take so much pride in your work that you're worrying about that. Again, I think that's something that, no, you don't want to push yourself to the point where you have PTSD when yeah. thinking about your job. Uh, but at the same time, unfortunately, at that time, people didn't know to rest, recover, and they was just like, Keep going. More and more trauma. And now we know that trauma followed by adequate recovery, rest and relaxation, and then coming back and engaging to the point where it's semi-traumatic in terms of the work is what you might want to consider pursuing. Yeah. And one more side note too, before we leave his childhood days and his early years, I think that, you know, this is a really important reminder. A lot of people are still living under this mindset of don't say anything honest about people's parents. And they're terrified of this for a number of different reasons. They're because still, of the whole, if you're older, you don't talk bad about older people. Or, yeah. And yeah. a lot of that is spillover from misreading biblical texts. And they still carry this mindset of being so terrified from their own parents that they never appropriately analyze, was this nice? Like, should this person have treated me like this? Were they abusing me? Like, they don't mm -hmm. face really, really hard questions that you have to face. And my speculation is that a lot of Walt's future problems in life were because, and, and I say challenges and problems very loosely, but a lot of his interpersonal challenges, let's just call them that, arose from his interactions with his parents and the fact that his dad was just you know, beating him. And at one point it was, it's the worst thing in the world when somebody is just a big hypocrite and then they're doing something. So his dad would always be espousing things about morality and fairness and, oh, we need to do equal this and equal that. And then at the same time, he would beat the crap out of his son. Horrible. And it actually got to the point where it was so bad that his dad grabbed a hammer. He took him down to the basement, grabbed a hammer, and basically cornered him. And he, as he starts to approach him, so this is when Walt is 14, Walt grabs his dad's hands and basically just pushes him down to the floor. And his dad realizes like, oh, I can't, I can't beat him anymore. Good, he's gonna go kill Walt. Me. And that type of uh, realness can't be left out of the biography, can't be left out of the story. We all have to come face to face with whatever you know situations there are like that, because for better or worse, that's part of his his story. So, And I think that his brother Roy's protection of him early on is very, very interesting because later on in business, he would basically do, he was the finance and operations person. And I think that's very interesting how early on, so basically for decades, Roy was helping Walt achieve things in his imagination through financing and business deals and things like that. And it's just interesting how the best business relationships take decades to form, solidify. And it's a challenging thing because so many of us want to start businesses and recruit people and you just have to be patient and you have to really nurture those relationships and not be too judgmental. Don't be 
always looking out and thinking like, oh, I wish this person would do that. I wish this, the person would do this. I wish they could be better. It's a situation where you have to have patience. You have to appreciate the fact that that person is in the trenches with you. That's a huge, huge thing. And the more time that you can build that relationship, the more interactions, the more business dealings that you can compile, it's just like a rope that gets stronger and stronger as more and more fibers get woven together. So over time, you have this type of rope that can't be broken. So yeah. Love it. All right. Time's a ticking. So you got to move on to the next section, buddy. <laughs> oh, so yeah, I spent the entire time on his, uh... <laughs> on his childhood. That's about it. No. All right. Next one. Well, this is that important. Yeah, but, it is um, important. So let's skip his uh, younger years then. But so I think when Walt was getting started founding Disney and I can't help but going back to the business lessons here, but generally he did all of it through loans. And this is especially interesting because this is how business used to be done. Bank loans and different type of distribution deals. And what a lot of people today don't realize is that, you know, where we're at anyways, we're very biased because venture capital kind of rules all of the conversations and that's the focus point. But in traditional business, banks give loans when people have revenue and profits and business plans. And this is a very interesting idea to kind of reflect on how business used to be done and see that it's not necessarily antiquated. Maybe it's more sophisticated and maybe some of these things that happened in the past resemble what is going to be happening in the future. And I'm a very, very big proponent that you look at the world right now, there never has been a situation where there's been more money on the balance sheets of banks at any point in history. Yeah, because they don't know what to do with it. They don't know what to do with yeah. it. They don't know where to invest it. And there's also never been more media and press around venture capital. That's been sensationalized. And there inevitably is going to reach a tipping point where that type of media begins to influence banks. And I think we're already at that point where banks are starting to realize okay, how do I get access to these deals much, much earlier on? You see companies like Fidelity investing in later stage rounds at Uber. And you see this all across the board where banks are starting to get much, much more interested in that. And I think that that trend is going to accelerate. Because, it's coming back. Yeah. And Making a comeback. I, I think that banks are going to become the biggest backers of the best VCs. And they're also going to start their own. They're going to attempt corporate VC, but I don't think it's going to work too well. Cool. We have... Bill talking about his mentor was the secretary of the president of the company he went to work for after dropping out of high school. You would love Bill. I feel like you would have dropped out of high school if it was up to you. And she saw in me the potential to rise to the top. And 15 years later, I was a partner in the company and I took the company through a bankruptcy and was one of the less than 1% of bankruptcies that year. Later, sold the company to retire at 53 years old, a millionaire. I was a failure throughout my childhood and was rescued by the one person who believed in me. I love it, That's Bill. a good story, Bill. Bill, we should be doing a biography about you. That's, yeah, really. yeah, that's so inspiring. That's really, really cool. That's amazing. And Thanks, Bill, for sharing that with us. That was, that's really cool. Yes. Putting a heart on that one. Just for you, Bill. Yeah, anytime you can go broke and not break, it's really rare, I would say, because yeah. people's ego is so closely tied with how much money is in the bank. And that's really impressive. And you know you're not letting your ego get the best of you. If you can take something that's either bankrupt or at the bottom or in the negative in the red and, and Turn make it, it work. That's not an easy situation. Yeah, no. Especially when you're trying to lead a team. So I would love to talk a little bit about when Disney got started and Disney starts to have some modest success with his early animations and he's developing some new ways to animate and new technologies. And 
his ethos is generally to make a superior product. And those ethos are timeless. And that is a lesson where if you can be just a bit better in terms of the work and the effort and the skills and the team that develop the product, you're in a sense light years ahead of many other people. And as you get started, you can find and stumble across ways to do things better. You don't have to have a process that is really sophisticated technology or 10 times better than the so-called competition when you get started in whatever industry you're in. In many cases, you can just get started. And as you're going and doing things the slow, traditional way, you're going to have people who are lazy in the best sense where they say, I don't, I don't want to do it like this. I wish there was a way that this could just get solved. Somebody says, well, imagine if, and you have a new solution. And just like we talked about the rope earlier, those new solutions add up again and again and again. And we see this when we make podcasts for clients. It's a situation where the first one like didn't know too much. The second one started to learn a little Learning bit more. Learning a little. Third one, oh, wow. Now it's starting to like click. But this is a situation where it doesn't matter what industry you're in, you can do the same thing. You can do the, pursue a similar strategy. Just focus on the client. In Walt's case, you know, a lot of the distribution deals and in a sense, the clients were almost like the bank and the people who were viewing the end product, of course. But he was conscientious about all of them. And he had his brother, Roy, handle the banks, which I think with, with any creator, the more you can separate yourself from the things that just halt you. Uh-oh. <laughs> this is like a me and you type thing, Mentally. huh? No, no. I'm, I'm perfectly happy with the- Oh, you're happy uh, with it? With the, the capital and the raising and everything like that, but not necessarily certain parts of the operations. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> I actually very much understand that. Certain things Chad will just not do. Can't think about it. I'll do them, but I kind of shut down and then curl up in a ball on the floor because I can't uh, yep. I, I can't think anymore. You're like the Seinfeld joke about the five-year-old who you know how bored they are. They oh. just can't stand and they just start slowly sinking to the floor where when like their mom's taking them to the bank and they're just laying completely on the floor because they're so bored. Yeah, that's... You're still at that stage. He said you're an adult when you can be completely bored and still do something and stand or like sit. But to be fair, you're still at the five year old stage. To be fair, a lot of that I have executed on despite not sometimes being good at. Um, Oftentimes I've come out to the studio and you're laying on the floor with Toasty, (laughs) our dog, and I'm like, doesn't really look like you're actually getting any of that accounting stuff done. So that's just that's just stretching. You don't want to stand too long. Don't want to sit too long. So what else are you going to do? True. All right. And okay, so. I just want to touch on one thing too. So during World War II, everybody is rationing things. Money is tight. And instead of continuing just on the animation path, Disney branches out and decides to make training films for the government. And a lot of people are saying like, oh my God, do you want to be associated as a propagandist? This is going to be horrible. How are you going to like face your clients and face your fans and everything like that? And I really, really respect Disney because he said, no, I, I, I don't care. I'm a big fan of the American government and I have no trouble doing this. I have no trouble creating training manuals. And not only did he create tutorials and things like that, but in a sense, he was the first pioneer of global media that helped connect the world and show people in different countries that they shouldn't be fearful of their neighbor. So he did this through telling the stories of what was going on in many different countries. And this is at a time where the United States was very worried about the Red Scare and communism proliferating around the globe. So to combat this, he basically just told the story of what was actually going on at so many of these different countries and internally. 
And I think that this is a very interesting idea that it's easy to turn your nose up at your country, especially when you happen to live in one where it's the greatest experiment ever of a nation state from a financial sense. Not perfect, a lot of horrible things, but at the same time, if you compare all of the other variables across every other empire or country in history, you stack up pretty well. And he realized that perfection and utopia was something that he craved, but he also realized that it didn't exist in reality. It just existed in his head. It didn't stop him from trying to create it and trying to mediate it in the future, but it didn't stop him and prevent him from doing work today. And one of the most disheartening things about a lot of Silicon Valley culture and some people here is that they tend to fall into the trap of just thinking like everyone in government is dumb and yeah. everyone at the state level is just dumb. Yeah, being very like fundamental, like you, as a it's, whole group, you guys are all out. Don't, yeah. I'm not going to listen to any of you. It's yeah. much, much harder to engage in the process and realize, okay, just like in technology, we are always standing on the shoulders of giants and that everything that has come before has enabled us to do more with less. We're using platforms we didn't create. We're using telco systems that took who knows how many people's blood, sweat, and tears and capital to create. We're leveraging all those things. Well, it's the same thing with a nation state. It takes a huge, huge amount of sacrifice and risk to create one. And in a sense, that's a form of high technology. So I came out of this with a big, big respect for Walt during the war years. Yeah. wasn't a fan of war. I am very, very interested in how do we prevent interspecies war. Yeah. But at the same time, it didn't stop him from starting where things were at and just starting to make things better. Yeah. So, well, then that. I've got the perfect question for you, Madison. Shout out to Madison for What's dropping up, Madison? in a great question. She says, how do you overcome the hesitation of starting? Because you can see how far you have to travel between the start, which is the idea, and the finish line, the result, which so, is exactly kind of what you're Yeah, into. I would recommend just getting started by uh, helping out editing you know, a newsletter maybe and oh helping improve social posts because we really need that. Madison's on our team. so <laughs> I'm half joking, half joking. Um, so this is really hard. So I find myself, it feels like quicksand sometimes when the vision you have in your head is so hard to articulate to others and you realize the huge gap and the huge journey that you have to embark on. And it's really, really scary. It's unnerving. And the best way that I've found to alleviate the enormous amount of anxiety that comes from the distance between where I want to go, what I know is going to happen and where I'm at now is through just doing stuff to get there, doing stuff. So basically just reverse engineering the process and speculating about what things I need to knock out and get done along the way. I have never felt more relief when I have anxiety, when I'm anxious about something, than if I just take a couple actions to get there today. They could be almost jokingly small, like basically painfully small, but I always feel better afterwards. So that's what I would say. And I think giving yourself the room to fail in the beginning too, knowing yeah. that that can, may, probably will happen and that's okay because that's how every project starts. You just never hear about the people failing and failing and failing and failing until they get to that one success. So Completely. And it's it's definitely, it's always a meandering journey and it doesn't look like you think. That's something else that I'm starting to discover more and more is that you might have this idea in your head, but the beautiful thing about life and whatever type of world we're in or simulation, if you want to go there, reality always outruns apprehension 
I think that's Alfred North Whitehead said that or some, or maybe it was Herman Melville. I think. Sounds right to me. Herman Melville <laughs> said that reality outran apprehension. That's what is in Moby Dick. But anyways, the point of that is that whatever type of universe we're in, you can imagine the best thing in the world. And if you make the appropriate sacrifices, life can actually be better than what you have in your head. And that's the wonderful thing about life and the opportunity to be a human is that it can always get better and better. And there appears to be no upward limits on, on that. Conversely, it also appears that life can get worse and worse and worse. And that doesn't have any end either, which is the terrifying part about where we find ourselves. Yep. All right. First, shout out to Susie. She's joining. Susie Wilbur. Oh, what's up, Susie? My bestie from like kindergarten. Um, and okay, Bill, we need to write a story about Bill. He needs his own book. Completely. So he lost $1.2 million in 2008 from the stock market crash. And that was 90% of his entire life savings. And then his partner of 29 years, he lost his partner. And then it took him 10 years to re-educate himself and get back in the game. Bill needs a book. And I don't know how to pronounce his last name, so I don't want to botch it. I'm not going to try. But that's pretty crazy. Bill, I have enormous, enormous respect for you. That's very, very cool. Yep. And Dina, she says she's here. She, he, there's no picture. Dina, where's your picture at? Hard to see who you are. All right, what's next on your list? So later when Disney realizes that things at the studio are starting to stagnate and he's really not feeling it anymore, he ventures out to found Disneyland in California and then starts scoping out area and territory in Florida. And it's not a situation where he knew all of the details, but he just started to research it. He's just started to go out. And I think there were just dozens and dozens of different tours of spaces and things like that, that he, he did. And it's just a great reminder where yeah, you have to start somewhere and you have to learn from the best of what's going on. So he would go to like the world's fair and other places to get ideas and I think that the biggest project that he didn't get to see fulfilled in his lifetime was Epcot. So experimental prototype city of the future, I think. If I get the is acronym that what it's right. called? Yeah, is I, that what it stands for? Yeah, I think that was the acronym. Who knew? And I didn't know. Again, one of the things that I love about reading historical works like this and, and learning about history firsthand is you get a sense of the idealism that existed back then. So if you were to go to bankers, even if you had a small business that was spinning out about the same amount of revenue that Disney had at the time, if you were to go to bankers and say, I want to build this city on this area because it's going to be really important to paint a picture of an ideal city, a utopia, and we're all going to you know, work here and we're going to get these different enterprises to sponsor it and to bankroll it. And we're going to have a school here and we're going to have this here they're not going to take you seriously. And very, very few people would. And we see some, I guess, signals that this might be idealism might be returning with projects like, you know, there are a number of different cities basically. And there's actually a company that's trying to found a new city in Florida now, but the amount of capital that those companies have, and there's some really large tech companies that are exploring smart cities and yep, stuff like that. They were talking about in the future of cities, shout out upcoming podcast it's coming, coming out soon the future of cities yes it's gonna be a good one but i think what's very telling is that disney's company was tiny compared to these monstrous companies now that are doing that and i think that what we've lost is a sense of taking people's imagination as serious as like if somebody has an, an idea for something maybe they're serious 
And I, you know, I think that we so often dismiss big and bold ideas as being terrifying or too out there. And I really, really want to get back to a place where people who have these big ideas can practice articulating them, have these visions taken seriously. And even when your company is fairly small and doing a couple million or you know tens of millions in revenue, have lending institutions and backers take the idea and the dream seriously. That's one of the biggest takeaways from the book for me is that it was really inspiring to hear how quickly companies like GE and all these other institutions basically came to Disney's aid and helped bankroll the various theme parks and projects and uh, and rides. So a lot of companies too. It was a great book too on branded content. I'm a sucker for branded content because that's what we do at the Mission Studios. And it was really, really exciting to see how many different companies jumped at a chance to sponsor a ride, sponsor this or that or the small thing at the park. And I think that was really cool. That is cool. Yeah. If anyone has any comments or thoughts on their most inspiring moment from the book or their favorite piece, drop it in the comments. I want to hear about what you guys liked um, from the book. Of course, we love hearing what you like as well, Chad, but no, no, I, it's yeah, good to hear from, rather... the, from our mission book club. Friends. Yeah, contrary to what you might think, I don't like to listen to myself talk. I, you don't. I cringe. You won't even listen to the episodes of the Mission Daily. <laughs> I don't think you've reviewed one of them. Have you? You haven't. Oh my gosh, not even one. <laughs> this is sad, people. All right. But do tell me what you would like me to work on in terms of <laughs> any verbal tics or repetitive phrase, phrases. I, I don't want to be an old model Westworld robot, so... Help me improve, everyone. No one will help you unless you listen to your own episodes. <laughs> I'm not allowing anyone to help. All right, let's take a quick break to give a shout out to our sponsor, Twilio. So Twilio Signal Conference is coming up in October in San Francisco. Don't forget to use our promo code MISSION20 to get 20% off, and we will see you there at the Customer and Developer Conference of the Year. All right, and is there a So final one? thought. Okay, final thoughts. Final thought. This is my kind of contrarian conclusion. It's kind of sad. It might not end on the type of note that... People might be looking for, but I think this book is a tragedy. And I think that it's a tragedy in a very sad sense that there were so many different types of conversations that I feel like Disney, maybe he had them, but I don't think that he did. And I think that it's very sad that he pushed himself and worked himself so hard to try to bring his imagination to the world that he ended up basically like killing himself and having to rely on alcohol to numb the intense pain that comes from trying to realize a vision in the real world. And the second thing that might be not what people are expecting is that I don't think that this was necessarily Disney's fault. I think that it's great that there was a lot of idealism in his day. It's great that banks were backing things and funding projects, but it's very, very sad that we can't come together more easily as people into large teams to get behind a singular or a vision that is going to take five years, maybe it's going to take 10 years. But I think that the more that we can do that as team human, the more that we will be very successful. So for me, this book was a tragedy at the end where Disney dies. And I feel like he just hasn't had any of the conversations that he should have. And again, what conversations should he have had? Or what would you have liked to see or read or hear about? I would have enjoyed hearing more of a catching up with his brother and less uh, about how how much they fought over finances and things like that more of a camaraderie and collaboration type thing there i would have enjoyed to hear more of his wife supporting him instead of basically blowing off things and being weirdly jealous basically and just a whole bunch of other annoying things which was just kind of a bummer so, so that's what actually happened though and you just that's wish what, it would have yeah. 
Okay, got it. All right. And I liked, um, so you actually got us some tears on Facebook, you know, the little tear emoji. We've oh. gotten two of them now. So let's bring this conversation back up now. But um, the ultimate and the biggest takeaway here that we always have to remember and we always have to keep in mind is that the subtitle of the book is The Triumph of the American Imagination. And I think that in the future, in the not too distant, in the near term here, we are going to have a golden age of creation, of funding, and of new types of funding vehicles outside of venture capital that enable those who have a very, very specific imagination and who can show, here's how the path will be created, here's how we'll do it. We're going to take seriously the idea that certain people might be able to not only think of a better future, but they might be able to actually predict it. And that's, yeah, it might be a little bit out there, but I think that we're going to be taking those individuals much more seriously. And in the future, statements like imagination is the largest part of what we call intelligence are going to be taken much more seriously because we're going to develop new ways to measure imagination, new types of intelligence tests so that somebody like Walt Disney, who is an imaginative genius, isn't going to have to numb the pain of not having those appropriately valued. And he's going to be able to realize them in his lifetime. So I think that we are going to enter a golden age, but I don't think that that's going to happen unless we build it. Yeah. So to end on the positive note though, Sid or Side, sorry, I keep watching your name. She really liked his unrelenting optimism. And yes. it's interesting though, because she said that she married into the extended family and she knew him and that he was very driven, but very lonely, which yeah. is exactly what you're saying. So I think finding those types of people who have those big ideas and helping encourage them, being on their side, knowing that, that you could be the one person that steps in and makes that person's idea a reality only because you give them a little bit of support, a little encouragement. You could basically be all they need to become the next Walt Disney who actually ends life on a more positive note, hopefully. Yes, and who doesn't die early and in, in a sad way. So, yeah. And who lives much, much longer. Yep. So thank you so much for listening. Yeah, and thanks everyone for joining us on the Mission Book Club. This yeah, is fun. This is I know- Ian usually does this with you and I had to jump in. So I might not be as good of a moderator as Ian, but it's still a great time. I'm still here for fun. <laughs> you did an awesome job. And the next book is The Courage to be Disliked, which... Uh, you have it over there? We have it over there. Can I... Right next to the toasty picture? Well, you were sitting backwards on the chair, so... That was a successful dismount. So <laughs> next book. Who's it by? Can you say the name? I can't pronounce it yet. But by the time <laughs> That's why I do, asked you. By the time we do the next book club, I will be able to pronounce it. I just love putting you on the spot <laughs> like that. So thanks, everybody. And we will see you next time All on right. The Mission Daily. See ya. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.